Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, beginning episode 31 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. So as I begin this episode, I'm a bit disheveled and I think I often am a bit disheveled during these, these times. And the more I talk and the more I create the podcast and really try to build an online identity and a method and a brand for helping others with grief and trauma and all the things no one wants to talk about. All of these things come up for me. I said to somebody the other day, and I think I said on a podcast episode that the podcast is the best therapy ever. I really, really feel in the process of just putting these things out there that I'm feeling better about a lot of them. Or if I'm not feeling better, I'm looking at them honestly and closely and trying to get better around them. So this will be the final episode of season three. In season three, I have focused on this book, which now is torn and tattered, called The Body Keeps the Score. And I have also recommended this book to several people. Really, really, pretty much everyone I talk to. And I'm amazed at the number of people who are reading it. There's a workshop in Boston in the spring where the author of this book, Bessel van der Kolk, is coming and giving lectures and things. So I've signed up to go because I'd be just crazy not to go. I've learned so much from the book and really intuited so much of it. What's been interesting as well for me is when other people are reading it. So I've you know recommended it to several different people and the responses that they get and how in my last episode, I talked about that article that made grief a disorder and how it wasn't normal. And I'm amazed at the number of people that have grief and trauma in their lives. And so I think if this is just a normal part of everybody's life, and think about it, how can you live 75 to 80 years and not have any traumatic experiences? If you don't, I don't know, I don't know how that happened <laughs> because it's everywhere. We have social trauma, political trauma, personal trauma, you know, all these things happen. Brushing your teeth is a daily part of life because it makes your teeth healthy. And we don't think of a cavity as a disease. You know, you brush your teeth more. It's a daily part of life, how to keep your teeth healthy. So how to keep your heart healthy, not the one that beats, but the one that loves. And how to keep your mind healthy, not the one that adds and subtracts, but the one that processes. How to keep your soul healthy, whatever that is, your connection to God or your connection to the universe or that unexplainable piece of science that lives within all of us. You know, those things all need to be kept healthy without stigmatization. And so this is a, something that I've learned quite a bit of as I've gone along. As I wind up this season, and I really could do six more episodes because I'm not done with the book yet, but I'm going into the part of the book, the end of the book, which talks about healing. And, you know, it's divided into different parts. So I've read four parts. Part five is called Paths to Recovery. So as I get into this part of the book, as I really delve into recovery, like, okay, it's happened. And now what do we do? I feel like it's a good time to pull away from just talking about the book and look at what are some things I'm doing in my everyday life that indicate recovery and how am I, how am I doing this as a grief-stricken, traumatized human being? So let me be clear, I've lived most of my life as a traumatized human being anyway. And then with my job loss and the subsequent drama around that with the people involved and now Molly's death, and then the brain tumors in my head, you know, one after the other, I've had 2009, I turned... 46. And now I'm, this summer I'll be 59. So it's 13 years. 
So as long as Molly was alive, I would categorize my life as relatively trauma-filled. July of 2009 to now, July of 2022. So 13 years of pretty heavy, intense drama, trauma, grief, all of it. So here I am, you know, Jack-Jack is at big boy school today. Kenny's in Florida, spending some time with his mother, who was in her mid-90s. And she wakes up every day praying to die. She doesn't want to be here anymore. You know, stuck in a room. And how we deal with old people in this country is just so tricky. You know, some of it makes sense and some of it doesn't. And we all have to do what fits for our families. And, you know, Kenny's far away from his mother. So he's down there. And that's a good place for him to be right now. I kind of wish he would stay. Not that it's easy up here all by myself with a baby. but. I take some sense of comfort in knowing that he's really where he should be, which is with his mother. He will only regret time that he doesn't spend with her. Parallel to that is I read a post on Facebook just now about, you know, babies. And there are so many 9 million ways to be told to raise babies. Ultimately, you have to do it the way that works for you. But this post was basically about letting a baby cry in a crib for 90 minutes is not good for the baby. The baby isn't being manipulative and trying to play you. You're not spoiling the baby by picking them up and comforting them and it's all about, you know, the back and forth about sleep and feeding and breastfeeding and, you know, trying to get your baby to sleep all night. And I don't know, all these different things. And there is every opinion in the book about it. My feeling is, look at nature. Look at how animals treat their babies. <laughs> they let the baby dictate a lot of it. My point here is that I feel comfortable sleeping with Jack and nursing Jack on command or demand rather you know, supplementing him with breast milk rather than formula from somebody that's willing to donate and share. I'm creating a life for Jack that in my mind mitigates and reduces infant trauma, feeling unloved or unsupported, not being able to verbalize it and vocalize it. Now that I've lost a child, you know, in losing Molly, there were people that thought we were nuts for sleeping with our kids. We did the family bed. I couldn't look at having my child down a hall and around a corner behind a closed door. I still don't, I mean, I have a hard time with Gracie in Florida. Call me overprotective, but that's just me. And having Jack with me in the night, I know where he is. I know he's safe. He schmuggles it and he feels comfortable. And in having lost Molly, I do not for one minute regret sleeping with her, you know, until she was seven, <laughs> because I have hours of life with Molly that other people don't have. So, okay, I digress. In this series, season three, I really, really focused on body keeps the score and how grief and trauma affect the body. And it's been wonderful. And I'm not at all ready to stop talking about these things, but I am, as I said before, going to reframe it into things I'm doing now that evidence the fact that I am, in fact, on the road to healing. So if I had to title this one, I think I'd title it Putting It All Together, Healing From Trauma and Owning Myself or Owning Yourself. And why do I say that? Well, because we get to a point, all of us get to a point where we realize what's wrong is not going to change. And I spoke about that specific to grief when Gracie and I had very different timeframes for when we really finally could accept that Molly was not coming back. I remember early on, after Molly died, Gracie, that summer, she was always seemed really happy. She woke up excited and friends were coming over. And, and I remember saying to her once, aren't you sad? And she's like, of course I'm sad, but right now I'm getting a lot of support and attention. I don't want to miss any of it. And as only a immature 15 year old could do, she really just without pretense took in the joy of all the support she was getting. And all I could do at the time was look at the only reason these people were here is Molly was dead. And I would sit alone forever if Molly could be alive. And so Again, there's no normal way to grieve and we all, we all bring ourselves into grieving. KK, my spiritual mentor, just released a podcast and it was like, she called it telling it like it is and how people always say, oh, you tell it like it is. But we don't tell things like they are because we don't know what they are. We tell things as we are because what I see out of my eyes and what I intuit from everything that happens 
comes from my experience, my history, my past, my understanding, my predictions, all of it. So you and I can watch the same movie or watch the same car accident or experience the same loss. And it will be completely different experiences for both of us because what I bring to it is Barbara Higgins. And what you bring to it is you, who you are. And everything that you've learned and experienced and dealt with in your life goes into how you think of anything. And I remember this in terms of a memory thing we did in the psychology class I took once. We were asked to remember an event that everybody knew. Oh, it was Elvis Presley, Elvis Presley's death. So of course, some of us could, could didn't care less because you know, I was 14 at the time and I didn't listen to Elvis Presley. But I know that my grandparents did. And my uncle Walty, who was my age, was devastated by his death. It was a very different reality. But it's the same thing. It's a death. We all experience it different. We all bring into that death us. So in my adult life, going to Graceland and really getting to know Elvis and his life, it's a much bigger thing to me now. Like, oh my gosh, what a tragedy that was. What could he have offered had he lived? This holds true in, in all, in pretty much day-to-day activities. You go to a movie and what you get from it is totally different than what somebody else gets from it and how you remember. Actually, I have a very specific memory of this. There's a movie called The Stepmother. And I remember watching it with Ember Smith. She's Ember Stokes now, and she's one of my runners. And her parents suffered a nasty, tragic divorce while she was young in high school, still, you know, or maybe middle school. She was very young and impressionable. And so we watched this movie with Julia Roberts and, and Julia Roberts is the young, beautiful, new girlfriend of the older guy and his wife, played by Susan Sarandon, is dying of cancer. It's this incredibly powerful, beautiful movie, which in the end, the family is together. And when it was over, I'm like, oh my God, I love Susan Sarandon, blah, 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 blah. And Ember looked at me like, what? No, 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 I loved Julia Roberts and how it all came together and blah, 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 blah. And Ember hated Julia Roberts. She hated the whole thing. She hated how she was. She could not look at Julia Roberts' character, the stepmother, with anything but disdain and hate because she represented what her life was. Her parents divorced and some new person married to her father. I looked at Susan Sarandon, the mother who had to accept this person, this new stepmother for her children, and the whole process they took and how they came together is this beautiful thing. It was just amazing. We absolutely had opposite views of that movie. It was the same movie and they end up united. But Ember and I had very different views on that resolution. And that's exactly what life can be. And that's why grief can be such a tricky thing to kill from. As I wind up season three, the next part of this book is called Paths to Recovery. Some, some things stand out for me. And actually, it's interesting because I talked about all of these things before I got into reading this chapter. But I want to just start with the beginning paragraph here. Nobody can treat a war or abuse, rape, molestation, or any other horrendous event for that matter. What has happened cannot be undone. But what can't be dealt with are the imprints of the trauma on body, mind, and soul. The crushing sensations in your chest that you may label as anxiety or depression. The fear of losing control. Always being on alert for danger or rejection the self-loathing, the nightmares and flashbacks, the fog that keeps you from staying on task and from engaging fully in what you are doing, being unable to fully open your heart to another human being. This is treating trauma. So here I am with a new baby. I have to fully open my heart to Jack Jack, don't I now? (laughs) Because he deserves nothing but love. I've said babies are truth makers and truth tellers and truth revealers. And Jack Jack brings a lot of truth to my life that is an incredible gift. And loving him is like the biggest gift ever. But I'm a traumatized individual and I have a lot of current trauma that is still unresolved and current issues in my relationship with Kenny, in my relationship with Roy, in some respects in my relationship and friendship with David Parker. And then of course with myself and then my family and Gracie. 
So five things come to mind here that I find are relevant. So in looking at this chapter of healing, a new focus for recovery, in order to regain control over yourself, you need to revisit the trauma. So this can be tricky. And I did the episode in the Molly season about death week and all of it, the ER visit, all of it. And that was incredibly difficult for me. I couldn't have shared that story in that way, in this way, like on a podcast two or three years ago. It was incredibly difficult. Now, doing the lawsuit and being able to box up my emotions, I have been able to share the story in legal situations and things like this. But just to share it and to go back is incredibly difficult. And it goes on to say, Sooner or later, you need to confront what has happened to you, but only after you feel safe and will not be re-traumatized by it. The first order of business is to find ways to cope with feeling overwhelmed by the sensations and emotions associated with the past. This is incredibly difficult for me, and I am finding now, so I've, I've been very honest, I've been very reliant on alcohol and for a long time other drugs to cope. I find now if I have drinks, and I don't drink a lot, but even one or two drinks, what it does is it puts me into a really negative place where everything is a re-traumatization. And I really realized that in order to really promote healing and resolution and get justice for things I feel I deserve justice for and all, I can't involve, I can't involve drugs or alcohol, even like antidepressant type things. I need to be really present and fully aware and feel it. I think this is the trickiest part about recovering from trauma. I have people in my life I know that are lifetime anti-psych med takers, and some of them have very, very specific diagnoses that make sense. Others, I feel, probably could be weaned off all of those things and find a good trauma therapist and realize that all of the things that they've been doing and masking are necessary for coping with the trauma. I mean, I'm not a doctor, but I'm just looking at myself and how that is. In looking at revisiting a traumatic event and then not trying to heal from that, it goes back to a story I told about Elizabeth Moulton, my, my psychotherapist, who did AMDR with me around driving by Concord Hospital. I couldn't do it. I went out of my way to avoid it. And she didn't have me go back to Molly's death. We all know Molly died in the hospital. That wasn't what we needed to revisit. What she had me do was visualize driving by the hospital. And now what feelings come up as you drive by the hospital? And this was all doing the knee tapping and the watching the, the you know, little antenna go back and forth, the body movements associated with the MDR. And I was able to bring up the emotions of what driving by the hospital made me feel like and where did I feel it? And then we'd think about that for a moment. And then she'd reset to me, well, you're not in front of the hospital right now. You're here in this room. You're in therapy. You're safe. And then we would replace, we would try to remove and decrease those panic responses and replace them with others or just diminish them. Remind, you know, retrain myself to not be re-traumatized by the building. It took three times driving by. And then she would have me do it. Okay, I need you between now and next week, drive by the hospital three times. If you have a panic attack, focus on it. If you get angry, focus on it. Don't just react, really focus on what's happening to you, where you're feeling it, and we can continue to treat it. It was life-changing for me. And I realized that there are so many aspects of trauma that, that <laughs> we treat the panic attack. Oh, take this pill and you won't be afraid anymore. Well, I took medicine for trauma and panic right after Molly died. And I, I think at the time I needed them because I wasn't in a place to cope with it. And you know, again, it's like you know, pain medicine after a surgery. Once the pain goes away, stop taking the pain medicine. <laughs> at any rate, Looking into what comes next in my life, which is being as healthy a mom for Jack and Gracie as I can, these things come into play. Revisit the trauma, confront what has happened to you, and then deal with what that confrontation brings up. There are five areas that come, or six actually, that come to play here. So one is limbic system therapy. So this is, you know, that, that horrible panic attack, the hyperarousal that I talked about, like, ah! you know, if you were 
diagnosed bipolar, it would be when you were manic, crazy out of your mind, going fast. And, you know, I call it the white tornado. Sometimes I clean the house and I can clean the house, the whole house in a half a day because I just get in this crazy white tornado mode where I'm just wishing, wishing around cleaning. Here's what this book has to say. The fundamental issue in resolving traumatic stress is to restore the proper balance between rational and emotional brains so that you can feel in charge of how you respond and conduct your life. Triggers. You get a trigger and it sends you off the deep end. I remember when I took Gracie and Molly down to visit Roy that time and he got so angry that the girls didn't want to stay. It was a huge trigger for him. It was a very, very terrifying response. But looking back on it now, I have a whole new idea of that was a trigger and he went from rational to irrational. I've done it myself. I do it with Kenny sometimes. Something, something will trigger and you know, Kenny and I have a lot of unresolved stress in our marriage and I can go off and I just get so angry, really, really angry, like unnecessarily angry. And is that self-anger? Is that anger at Kenny? Is that anger at the universe for taking Molly? Is it, you know, all of those things. And triggers and learning to cope with triggers is a huge piece of trauma therapy. And also just overall mental health, being able to recognize a trigger for what it is before you respond to it. When we're triggered into states of hyper or hypoarousal, we are pushed outside our window of tolerance and out of optimal functioning. So you have a baby. Babies can be triggers. After a while, I just want Jack to go to sleep. And there are times when I have to really just get up and walk away so I can go outside in the porch and scream because I don't want to scream in front of a baby because that's going to scare Jack. You know, I'm a phone chucker. It's a good thing I have an otter box because there are times when I just chuck the phone. I don't want to hurt it. I don't throw it at anybody. I should probably I should get like a pillow or something. I have a damn it doll. I should dig that out. One of the first parts of really healing from and treating trauma is this limbic system hyperarousal phase. And that a lot of that is the physical piece. The book says recovery from trauma involves the restoration of executive functioning. I talked about that, I think, in one of the last episodes that all of our immediate responses in life in general, you know, hey, Siri, answer this really hard question that I used to have to go to the library and read about, you know, on my phone. <laughs> We've lost executive functioning kind of as a society and a culture. I find students really struggle with it. But a traumatized person has none of it. To be able to step back and assess a situation and plan out the steps to resolve it requires a level of sanity that doesn't always exist in trauma and right after a trauma and in a traumatized state of mind. I talk about executive functioning a lot because it's such a, such a normal part of life. I remember watching a show on TV once about this boy that had gone off. He had a lot of learning issues and he was with a foster family and it was the wrong family. And he got returned to his family, I think. Anyway, he had had all this growth and he gets back into his house and his very abusive parent just like thrust him right back into situations that she knew logically he couldn't do. What that showed me was that she wasn't all right. She shouldn't have this child. But it was a really good illustration of, that was my dirty dishes analogy, that when you see a room that's cluttered and filthy, like I'm looking at my office right now, I don't have the executive functioning to do this by myself. The rest of my house is pretty clean. This is a disaster. It's that ability to step back and take a breath and sort of remove the emotion from the task and get to the task. The restoration of executive functioning and with it, self-confidence and the capacity for playfulness and creativity. So I read that and I'm like, give me a break. All right, so I can be playful and creative, but what this is getting to is that you really have to balance out the things that trigger you, step back from them and be able to find and keep balance in life. Befriending the emotional brain, dealing with the hyperarousal, having trouble focusing and prioritizing, learning how to breathe calmly. All right, I have a very hard time focusing and prioritizing. Ask my podcast editor. I get everything else done so I can do the podcast. I run out of time to do the podcast. I'm actually sitting here today unshowered I don't even think I brushed my teeth. It's a good thing you can't smell my breath. Actually, it would smell like coffee, but I'm doing the podcast first because it's really what's most important to me today. But I could very easily get sucked into 
that long checklist of things that will bring some measure of control to me. Get this done, get this done, get this done. That's unhelpful. Hyperarousal. So that's hard for me. And so that's befriending the emotional brain. Well, I try to shut that off. I don't want to think about things that upset me. Okay, the next thing is no mind without mindfulness. The most important phrases of trauma therapy are notice that and what happens next. So that's that stepping back. Oh, you're thinking about driving by the hospital. Notice how you're feeling. So what should you do now? What happens next? That was a very, very, very useful but difficult piece of my grief therapy around Molly. And at the core of this recovery is self-awareness. This podcast has given me incredible self-awareness, much more than I think I had even just seven months ago when I started it. A lot of different techniques that help trauma therapy and trauma victims and, and grievers recover are things like Aikido, Judo, Taekwondo, Jiu-Jitsu, all of these things that I've never even thought of doing. But when you think of these activities, yoga, is they all center you and tell you to be still. All of these techniques involve physical movement, breathing, and meditation. Somewhere back here in this book, it said that to heal from trauma, your therapy had to have movement, it had to have breathing, and it had to have meditation, quietness. For someone like me that doesn't like to sit still, why I'm not in a class with these things is interesting. Also, it explains why I love running, rowing, cross-country skiing, CrossFit, all of these activities that have me moving so I can be mindful and move. So number two, no mind without mindfulness. Mindfulness puts us in touch with the transitory nature of our feelings and perceptions. We pay focused attention to our bodily sensations. That's hard for me. I, I like to shut those right off. We can recognize the ebb and flow of our emotions and with that, increase our control over them. In order to deal with a negative feeling, you have to feel the negative feeling, really feel it and sit with it and be okay with it. And then you can learn to figure out a way to manage it or change it or control it. Very, very difficult. Traumatized people are often afraid of feeling. So the number of times I talked about the fact that in the months after Molly died, I couldn't work out too hard. If I got too out of breath, if the physical pain became too obvious, I cried. And you would think physical pain would somehow make me feel better. No, it was feeling. I couldn't feel anything. I just needed to be numb. I didn't have music or even talk radio in the car. I had the beeping. I had the beeping on this morning. It was interesting. I didn't fasten my seatbelt. That beep, beep, it was just the only noise I could tolerate in the car. I didn't want silence, but I couldn't tolerate being talked to or sung to at all. So I had just the beep, beep. Apprehension of being hijacked by uncomfortable sensations keeps the body frozen and the mind shut. That could be a t-shirt for me <laughs> when I look back to some of my, the processes I've gone through in my grief. And I don't know that it's this way for everybody. I know some people listen to tons of music and, you know, I couldn't take a shower for a long time after Molly died. And part of it was because the shower was upstairs, you know, in the bathroom where she was so sick. But even just the sensation of water, it was just awful. I couldn't stand it. And I have friends who spent hours in the shower because that's where you could go cry and, and all that kind of stuff. No, the shower... To this day, the shower doesn't bring me the, the pleasure it did before Molly died. It's just, I'll go get clean and that's it. Once you pay attention to your physical sensations, the next step is to label them. As in, when I feel anxious, I feel a crushing sensation in my chest. So this is what the EMDR therapy with Elizabeth did for me. Focus on that sensation and see how it changes when you take a deep breath. So now you're giving yourself or a doctor is giving a patient or a therapist is giving a client Permission to take ownership of the bad feeling. Never once have you said, don't feel that feeling or judged on the feeling. When are you going to stop remembering? It's like, okay, you have the feeling. So let's see if it changes with a deep breath. This is all incredibly powerful and in some ways, very, very safe for trauma victims and people who are grieving. Because grief is a trauma. Let's be serious. If you, if you have prolonged grief, 
and you're grieving for a long time over something, then clearly that thing was huge in your life and living without it is incredibly difficult. This mindfulness continues to be a difficult part for me. I wake up in the morning and the first thing I do is go for my phone. So I'm sleeping downstairs right now because I'm going to have my foot operated on and I'm going to have pins in my foot and all this. And I co-sleep with Jack. And in the night, sometimes I have to go to the bathroom and he needs to be safe. I'm going to have to crutch to the bathroom. The downstairs, we don't have as many thresholds on the doors as we do upstairs. So I can get through with my little scooter easily downstairs. And the bed is much lower to the floor downstairs than it is upstairs. So if Jack were to climb off, it's not, he's not going to fall far if he fell. So this morning I woke up and the beauty of it is Jack stayed asleep. It's like a familiar environment, I think, and the room is darker than upstairs. And so I got up and I had coffee and I thought, okay, I need to pray. And so I went online to look for some prayers. And of course, I just got sidetracked with Facebook and I sat back. So maybe this was my daily spiritual practice today. And I really analyzed it. Barbara, look at, or observed it rather. Look at this. What you want to do, you sat down to say a prayer. And I didn't say a prayer. I went on Facebook. Now, I was in my cluttered living room on a couch full of baby clothes. So it wasn't exactly a place that I could go and have mindfulness. So I have a lot of steps to take. I know that my mother and my friend Lisa both have like a shelf. It's a shrine, but it isn't a shrine. That's the wrong word. But it's just a place where there are pictures of loved ones and crystals and, you know, things that evoke a a positive spiritual response. I know that my mother says her prayers near hers. And as a Baha'i, the only thing about praying is, you know, you're encouraged sometimes to face east because... That's where Mecca is. In the morning, the sun's coming up and it's a beautiful direction to face to pray. But I, I don't have any of that. I don't have a place that is dedicated to self-reflection and meditation. I just put it aside. This is a step that will be big for me. And having Jack, there are times when, you know, I nurse Jack. And so there I am sitting and nursing Jack. And so I know I'm going to be stuck there for 10 minutes. Instead of, instead of closing my eyes and getting into a meditative state, I pick up my phone. And there are times Jack will smack it out of my hand. Like, don't look at your phone. Just look at me nursing. <laughs> And I think to myself, you know, with Molly and Gracie, before I was so attached to my phone, I would watch TV. I would just sit in the middle and put the TV on. So I'm nursing to some TV show. I can't sit still in my head. I remember years ago, we were on vacation at the Jersey Shore and it was Kenny's daughter, Katie, came with us. And cell phones were just big. And she was in a relationship at that time. And I remember we went to bed and I turned my phone off and it was over on a shelf because I still had my landline. It wasn't like a big, I wasn't attached to the cell phone yet. And hers was on her pillow. And I remember saying to Kenny, I can't believe she can't even go to bed without her phone. Well, texting had just started. And so you don't want to miss a text. Well, you know what? I sleep with my phone next to my bed. And I, sometimes it's in the bed with me and I wake up at night and I reach for it. She was just ahead of me in it because her, her generation had these, at that time, it was only youngsters that had Facebook. And, you know, it was just a very different thing. And I couldn't understand it as an older person. And now there I am attached to that piece of social media. So that's not unusual for a traumatized person. Mindfulness puts us in touch with the transitory nature of our feelings and perceptions. Traumatized people are often afraid of feeling. Apprehension about being hijacked by uncomfortable sensation keeps the body frozen and the mind shut. I know I've read those. It's helpful for me to repeat them sometimes. Once you pay attention to your physical sensations, the next step is to label them. So this is the process I'm taking, all those things all at once. Learning to observe and tolerate your physical reactions is a prerequisite for safely revisiting the past. If you cannot tolerate what you are feeling right now, opening up the past will only compound the misery and re-traumatize you for this is just a time, this is just a time and it's different for everybody. When I go on my grief pages and grieving mothers, people are in very, very, very different stages and they, have, they find these places much more quickly than others. A further step is to observe the interplay between your thoughts and your physical sensations. So sometimes all of a sudden my mouth will hurt. My mouth will hurt profoundly and I've had it fixed. When I'm okay, 
when I first wake up in the morning, my mouth does not hurt. I don't wake up. But all of a sudden, I'll be like, well, my mouth is killing me today. I step back now and say, okay, what's upsetting me? Because my mouth hurts when I'm angry, when I'm stressed, when I'm anxious, when I'm ambivalent, when I'm not okay in my heart and my head, my mouth hurts. So that's a process I've been able to begin. Becoming aware of how your body organizes particular emotions or memories opens up the possibility of releasing sensations and impulses you once blocked in order to survive. In chapter 20, I talked about the benefits of theater. I'll describe in more detail how that works. This jumped out for me. So let me reread this. Becoming aware of how your body organizes particular emotions or memories opens up the possibility of releasing sensations and impulses you once blocked in order to survive. Early on, what I liked about this book is that it took disorders and turned them into logical trauma responses. Things we do to survive. That gentleman from Vietnam that would hold up the store because the only way he could manage his self-hatred was to do something hateful. Okay, I did a bad thing. I got arrested. Okay, okay, I've been punished. I'm good now. And every year he would do this. Makes no sense to a non-traumatized person because they don't live in that trauma-filled reality. This exact thing is what keeps sexually abused people like me in that repeating loop of fear, 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 trauma, 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 block it away, block it away, recreate a bad thing, block it away, block it away, recreate a bad thing. You know, you just keep recreating it. Now, in Molly's death, there's no recreating the dead child. That recreates itself. That type of trauma is a bit different, I do have to say, than the abuse trauma, but both of them are very, very profound. Molly's foundation, when Molly was growing up and trying different things, she loved dance. Dance life can be very, very clicky, though. The number of times Molly came home in tears because of the gossipy, snarky girls at dance. And that is not a reflection on, on her dance school or any dance school. You get a bunch of girls in front of mirrors, learning steps together, and you're going to have your little groups where somebody is insecure and they're going to pick on someone else. Molly couldn't stand that. She would immediately, at her own social expense, help others that were getting picked on or teased or not doing well, not stepping up and learning steps quickly. She did that all the time. When she began theater, so then she took violin and then clarinet, and she loved the music. And the only reason she took either of those instruments was I bought her a pink violin, and then she was willing to take violin, but she, she loved music and singing. But when she joined theater, her first play was Fiddler on the Roof with R.B. Productions, and that's the theater company that the Molly B. Foundation sponsors. She came home and she said, Mom, I found my people. And every theater experience she had built upon how much she loved her theater friends, her children's theater project friends, her PEG friends, her RB Productions friends. She had three different theater groups that she, in, in the two years she did theater before her death, made her feel like a part of a family. And, that was, and she just knew that theater would be her life, whether it was making costumes, whether it was acting. Regardless, she knew that those were her people. In my visit with Friends of Anya, the Friends of Anya Foundation's manager, you know, President Christine, Anya's mother, we talked about Molly's love for theater and that what we do, the Molly B Foundation does is, is uses the art, gets children into the arts that can't afford it. And she really suggested that I look into ways to support and create programs, theater programs specifically, and dance and music around dealing with traumatized and grief-stricken young people. And Concord is a magnet city for refugee populations. So we have families that come here to cold, white Concord, New Hampshire from all over the world, different cultures and different skin colors and different routines and all of it, different religions. And here they are in Concord and I have unspeakable trauma. So do these people. And sometimes they're the ones that would benefit most. So it really has opened my eyes. I know this was a long-winded explanation, but coming into this scientific book about, by a therapist about theater and dance and movement and how that can help trauma is one of those universal messages that I feel tells me I'm on the right path in terms of Molly's foundation. 
Mindfulness has been shown to have a positive effect on numerous physical, psychiatric, psychosomatic, and stress-related symptoms, including depression and chronic pain. So I have two reactions to the chronic pain piece. I know when I first had trigeminal neuralgia, I was often told, you're just stressed out. It's stress. You know, you're making it up. It's exaggerated. And if I were happy, it was better. Well, of course, it's a nerve. It's a nerve. If I'm, if I'm relaxed, the inflammation of my body goes down, the stress goes down, the constriction goes down, and everything will feel better. And my mouth hurts now still when I'm stressed out. So obviously, trauma and all these things have a big physical effect. That was the mindfulness, hyperarousal and mindfulness. Number three in healing, and this is the first chapter in this part of this book on healing, is relationships. So this gets tricky for me because I remember one time talking about like the top five stressors and how I had all of them in my life, divorce, financial, marriage, death, moving, like all of these things and, and thinking, oh my gosh, I have them all, all the time. It's not poor for me. All of my really traumatized things were directly related to relationships. I had a very, very adult child. I do what you're told because you're, you're an authority figure in my life relationship with my abuser. And this person was supposed to be a part of what kept me safe. You know, your family and your extended family, their job is to love you and nurture you and keep you safe. You can't sexually abuse somebody and then in, in the next breath, a day or a week or a month later, tell them to trust you because they have your best interests at heart. Oh, no, 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 no. You completely lose that. The abuse was traumatic enough, but my abuser and the relationship and the dynamic that I was expected to live in made it even worse. And then the extension of what happened when I told and all of that. So I have that relationship piece. My job loss affected my marriage. My relationship with Kenny was a big piece of why I was willing to jump into my relationship with Roy. Those were relationships that weren't traumatic in the beginning. And the events that came in them created huge, huge amounts of trauma. There was just the normal trauma between me deciding whether or not to stay in my marriage or not. There was the job loss trauma and all the financial stress that that caused. And how do I keep Molly and Gracie happy now that I've in a humiliating way, lost my job. And there was the financial grief before I even, you know, got involved with Roy and helping him in his, you know, situation with his family and his divorce. And we had our financial stressors then. Relationships play a huge piece for me in dealing with grief. And not surprisingly, they're a big piece of how you get better. Not that you can repair in a relationship, but on some level, you have to repair it within yourself. It's like, I can't bring Molly back. She'll never come back. But I can work on how her death affects me and how I carry it about and, and it exists in my life. In order to recover, mind, body, and brain need to be convinced that it's safe to let go. I read this exact sentence in another podcast. Our attachment bonds are our greatest protection against threat. When I look at Jack, so he said he's one now. If he's playing happily on the floor in the living room and I walk into the kitchen to get his bottle or anything, do anything, he starts to cry. And it's not just a whimper. He just cries like a panic-stricken cry. He's at that developmental age where he, know, he knows I'm not there now. When they're littler, out of sight, out of mind, you leave the room and they don't realize that you were there anyway. They haven't put it together yet. They know you, of course. And when you come back, they're happy to see you, but they haven't connected that you're not there. So what Jack has yet developed is the fact that I'll come back. Even when if I'm talking, I'll, I'll keep, I'm right here, big boy, right here, I'm right here. Nope, does not matter. If he can't see me, he's a mess. So think about that. Make believe you have that mindset in your adult life. Not that you can't not be with people, but that attachment. Traumatized human beings recover in the context of relationships. The role of those relationships is to provide physical and emotional safety, including safety from feeling shamed, admonished, or judged. It bolster the courage 
to tolerate, face, and process the reality of what has happened. I don't have a lot, lot of like angriness or judgment being shamed or admonished. Kenny doesn't, doesn't utilize those things. He's got his own grief and trauma where his sort of, in terms of my relationships, Gracie worries about me profoundly and always wants to make me happy and tries very hard to do so. And she always has. I think that part of our relationship has exaggerated since Molly's death because she's suffered a loss and she doesn't want to lose more. And I feel that way around her as well. I'm very, very protective. Kenny, so he and I wouldn't even probably, I don't don't know what would have happened had Molly not been sick and had a brain tumor. I'm not quite sure. I can't even really pinpoint what would have happened because, because, you know, it didn't happen. So how do I know? In our trauma and healing, you know, I would say he's tried his best to bolster courage in me, to tolerate and face and process our, our reality. We share Molly as a daughter. So it's in our best interest for Gracie and now for Jack to do those things in a healthy way. I can't speculate. I mean, I'm not inside Rory's head, but I do know of all the people that are very close to me, anyone that's admonished me or shamed me has been him. And I don't know that he does it to be mean. I don't know why he does it, but he's, he's often told me that I'm, I shouldn't be, still shouldn't be so sad. She's never coming back. So put it away and move on. And there are times that that makes sense, but I can't put it away because it's still somewhere. You know, it's that, it's that leaving room for grief. We had a big argument once and in the middle of that argument, he told me to stop pulling the dead kid card. Now, again, I have to assume that that came from a painful place for him because it's a horrifically mean thing to say, especially to somebody that you claim to love or once loved or are willing to spend time with a lot. So that, that's been hard. Again, that's a relationship that has a lot of, that's very, very broken and damaged and may never be able to be fixed in any meaningful way. I am hopeful that we will have some kind of resolution someday. When I read this sentence, I feel that way. I will also say in my sexual abuse journey, the only one who has really made me feel ashamed is myself because going through it is gross. And so you feel shameful and you wake up and feel disgusting. And when you feel disgusting, there's shame that goes along with it. When I read stories of other little kids that just say no and fight back and then the abuse stops, I'm ashamed that I didn't speak up earlier. Well, I was afraid. All I did was stay perfectly still. And the, and the staying still has become a very, very big theme in how I cope with things. I just sit still. So anyway, in our society, the most common traumas in women and children occur at the hands of their parents and intimate partners. So I've read these, these before. And this is all part of taking this and healing from it. Shame plays an important role in this. You will find out how rotten and disgusting I am and dump me as soon as you really get to know me. In the book here, I wrote, Roy said this to me. I remember a conversation early on in our relationship where we were sharing things in our childhoods and in our pasts. And we both acknowledged that we had gone through things that made us feel this way. And it came up, it came right up to me. I, you know, I, I write in books all the time. When I read a book, there's all sorts of writing stuff. And at the time, it was a very bonding moment for us because we acknowledged how bad it made us feel and all that sort of stuff. So at any rate, that's what came up for me here. So unresolved trauma can take a terrible toll on relationships. If your heart is still broken because you were assaulted by someone you loved, you are likely to be preoccupied with not getting hurt again and fear opening up to someone new. In fact, you may unwittingly try to hurt them before they have a chance to hurt you. This probably explains my interactions back and forth with Roy and, and some of the hurtful things that he has said. I just think he's hurt. And so he, he puts up the defense mechanisms. There's a stands with fist in the movie um, Dances with Wolves. She's the white girl that was you know taken in by the tribe of Native Americans and raised as one of their own. And her, her name is Stands with Fist because she was defensive. There are times that I feel like I'm stands with fist. We all are, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if it becomes a lifetime way of dealing with things, you know, 
then your life is just a series of hurting people and people being away from you. These things all pose challenges for recovery. In being a mother to Jack, it's obvious he's going to look at me as a guideline for how to be in relationships. And, you know, Molly and Gracie's childhood, as much as I wanted to make it not like mine, they were never abused, but they certainly had a double life and they had a mother that had a life they knew nothing about, like I did. You know, what I created for them ultimately in trying to protect myself was something as unsafe as my mother had created for her and for us. And that's hard, that's hard for me to cope with. And that's just me being as honest as I can. And if you want to judge me for it, go right ahead. I am just done with that. So the next part is in the relationship piece, it also talks about therapy and all that. And we've talked about that quite a bit. Communal rhythms and synchrony. So this really stands out for me in terms of growing children and communal rhythms and synchrony. When a mother has a baby in her belly, whether it's her biological baby or not, whether she's a surrogate or IVF or, or her own baby or whatever, the back and forth with the physical mother and the physical baby, there's a synchronous that's shared blood. And so many studies now show the incredible interaction and relationship between a mother and the baby in her belly, which is wonderful. And synchrony, if something is synchronous, it works together well. So obviously in our lives, we, we want synchrony in our environments. We want to feel like everything is balanced and well. This can be very, very different. Trauma results in a breakdown of attuned physical synchrony. When you enter the waiting room of a PTSD clinic, you can immediately tell the patients from staff by their frozen faces and collapsed, simultaneously agitated bodies. That's a physical obviousness right there. Unfortunately, many therapists ignore those physical communications and focus only on the words with which their patients communicate. And there's a lot in this book about how just plain talk therapy is never going to cut it. There are things that I don't have words to describe. And I've said that. The sound I made when they said Molly wasn't going to wake up, that they were too late. I can't, I cannot describe, there is not a word that fits what was happening at that moment, but the sound coming out of me illustrated it very well. The healing power of community as expressed in music and rhythms was brought home for me in the spring of 1997. This is the author. And what he talks about is he was at a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, and he visited places where there were terrible violence. And so all of the racial horrific things done to the black population in South Africa, you know, the native population, it's their country, all these rich white people, you know, trying to make it theirs and all of the, all of the horrible racism in South Africa. And he went to a clinic for women who had been brutalized sexually and raped in those altercations. And of course, there's no justice for those women because those men get away with it. The white men get away with it. What he observed was music and dance and rhythms and how the women came alive and were able to, now dance is a part of that culture. I don't think you'd see a bunch of white women in a circle dance here because that isn't what we do. But, but singing, meditating and doing it alone, you know, joining a, there's a choir in Concord that so many women belong to. And when I look at the faces in that choir, I realize that those are women that have had a lot of trauma. What do they do? They get together and they sing. When did Molly feel happiest? When she was at theater, when she was up on stage, being someone else and, and through that process of theater and drama and acting and stepping out of yourself and stepping back in in a healthy and beautiful way in an artistic way, saying words that somebody wrote, you know, it talks about how these communal rhythms and synchrony are a big piece of healing trauma. Molly knew this. I have to believe that Molly knew this. So in here, I just have, I have all these musical notes because, you know, music is such a big piece of, of healing. And, and it was something I couldn't even listen to. Oh God, music was far too painful. So theater, I wrote theater here. A group of juvenile offenders and at-risk foster kids gradually learning to work together and depend on one another, whether as partners 
in Shakespearean swordplay or as the writers and performers of full-length musicals. Different patients have told me how much choral singing, Aikido, tango dancing, kickboxing have helped them, and I am delighted to pass their recommendation on to other people I treat. Once again, movement, and movement in concert with someone else. Oftentimes I'll go rowing in the garage and I'm working out by myself and I love the movement, but there's something about doing it with other people. The CrossFit Open, which is a competition I just talked about, it's one of my favorite times because all of us in the room at the same time are caught up in our own workout. We want to do the best we can, but we're doing it together. I know that as much as I'm hurting, everyone else in the room is hurting the same way and for the same outcome. And it's just this profoundly important and good and big experience. I love that this is here. So this is even better. So there's a trauma center. It's in Watertown, Massachusetts, which is right near where I live. It's called the Sensory Integration Clinic. And it's like an indoor play area. And it's primarily for children. So you look at children who are labeled with autism. And so, so much of autism and autistic behavior is sensory integration and how they do have it or don't have it. And so much of learning is that sensory integration, like with Gracie and her math difficulties, tap dancing and memorizing dances and mashing the rhythm of your feet to the rhythm in the music. It's all mathematical thinking and it helps and supports that area of the brain. There was a girl, a mute girl, she was five and she was mute from China. After months of failed attempts to make contact with her, she realized that her rhythmical engagement system didn't work. She couldn't resonate. She didn't have that rhythmical thing. So they started music with her and sensory integration and doing all these different things. And all of a sudden she could talk. It wasn't that her mouth didn't work. It wasn't that she didn't know the language. She didn't have the ability to process inside what we do without even thinking to talk. I find this just fascinating. Learning to become attuned, so attuned to what you hear, what you see, what you feel, provides parents and their kids with the visceral experience of reciprocity. So this is now, I'm becoming attuned to it. So is the person that's supposed to take care of me. I know that in the years that passed after my abuse and having reconciliation with my abuser because it's somebody that I know, this person has spent a lifetime really trying to apologize for what they now realize was a huge, huge, horrible mess up in my ability to function in any sort of normal way. I will never have reciprocity with that person. I just won't. There will always be a big stay back. You know, this is your dance space. This is my dance space. You know, five floor tiles away, please, on an emotional level. The reciprocity is huge. I know with Jack-Jack, he really, really, he's so observant and he just watches. I was really upset once, really, really upset. And I was telling Kenny something and I was just angry. And my voice was angry and everything. And I looked at Jack and he just looked at me like, he had this little pouty face on. If you can't see me, I'm trying to imitate that. Oh my gosh, it stopped me in my tracks and I just shut my mouth because it was hurting him. He understood that I was unhappy and that made him unhappy. That's a reciprocal relationship. People in trauma and abuse will shut that right off and be very, very independent. I want to work alone. I like being alone. They're very, very tender about how they interact with other people. I've never, ever wanted to be alone, which is interesting. I've always wanted to surround myself in the chaos. I find a lot more comfort now. I am alone in my house right now. Love it. So visceral reciprocity, I guess, is something I have to work on. And when I think of like intimacy and boundaries, that's all relationship. That's all back and forth with somebody else. And that's an area that I struggle. So relationships. So getting in touch. Now comes touch. And I will say that being touched, being hugged, holding a hand, having a hair brushed away from your face, a pat on the back, handshake, a hug. These are all very, very normal things that human beings need. We need them to get well. Babies need to be held. You know, when a baby, it's why I'm such a fan of co-sleeping because when a cat has kittens, they don't leave them in the closet and go sleep somewhere else. They oftentimes get up and walk around, go to the litter box and all those things. It's not that they're never, ever off the floor of the closet, but 
those kittens come first. When nighttime comes, where's the cat? Some of the sleeping kittens. And when I think of that, when I think of that physical touch and when I watch Jack, when he's waking up in the morning, the first thing he does is reach out to see if I'm there. And some days he wakes up happy. Maybe he's had a good sleep. Other days he's fussy, but I'll crawl back in bed. So there I am and he'll nurse him awake and it's the sweetest thing. And then he wakes up and he's centered and he's happy. Am I creating a needy child? No, <laughs> he won't need that in a few years. He won't grow the need for that. But on that level, he'll always need to be loved and touched. Touch for me has been a double-edged sword my whole life. Physical touch right now, I have it for Jack and then I'm touched out. I call it touched out. There are a lot of traumatized women that struggle with breastfeeding because I will tell you right now, a little baby sucking on your nipple is a very, very, very intense sensation. Nothing romantic or sexual about it at all. It is just beautiful for me. But it takes all my energy sometimes to put up with it because it's such a visceral, close encounter. Oftentimes when I'm done nursing, that's when I need separation the most. So you nursing mothers that feel the same way, you, you are not alone. So here's the thing about playing, and then I'll get into getting in touch. When we play together, we feel physically attuned and experience a sense of connection and joy, like I just talked about with CrossFit. Improvisation exercises are also a marvelous way to help people connect and joy and exploration. The moment you see a group of grim-faced people break out in a giggle, you know that the spell of misery has been broken. One of Molly's favorite games in theater was called Park Bench. I don't remember it completely. I just know that you all sat on a bench and there was some sort of communication and you had to make up something spur of the moment, the person at the end of the bench. I'm not quite sure. I don't remember. Now that I brought it up, I have to go find it. But it was an improv game and they used it as a warm-up. You know, all these warm-ups, you know, before getting into, you know, we're going to rehearse scene three today or whatever it was. She loved it. Well, of course she did. It was getting, getting your group of people together. I know in cross country, when I coached at Concord High School and track, before any big race, I'd circle them up and we'd circle up and, and hold arms around each other. I believe in myself. I believe in my team. I believe in my coach. I believe in honey. I believe in Winnie the Pooh. I believe in the blue sky. I would do all of these things that would unify and connect this group of girls so that when they were racing, although they were running their own race, they were never disconnected to the the other team members. It was incredibly powerful. And it was just their chance to, and we'd end it with, we race. And that was just a way to connect our team ahead of time. And that would take away some of their fears and such. All right, so getting in touch, this sort of five out of six sort of specific ways that healing, the process of healing begins. The most natural way we as humans calm down our distress is by being touched, hugged, and rocked. This helps with excessive arousal and makes us feel safe, intact, protected, and in charge. So Jack-Jack, of course, babies, we think of babies right away. And what do we do? We rock them, the baby sway. My friend Kendra was holding Jack at the gym on Saturday and she was swaying back and forth. It's just automatic. And she said, I have not forgot the baby sway. The movement calms babies down, calms all of us down. Kenny and I were fighting the other night and I was nursing Jack and he goes, not to butt in, but you know, that chair does rock. Well, I know it rocks. But when I'm nursing Jack, I don't often rock him. So I just want to overstimulate. He's nursing. So we'll just sit with that. But he's right. The rocking helps. Oftentimes when I'm upset, rocking in a chair helps me or rowing, some sort of rhythmical movement. Touch, the most elementary tool that we have to calm down, is prescribed for most therapeutic practices. You can't fully recover if you don't feel safe in your skin. Therefore, this person encourages all of his patients to engage in some sort of body work. Therapeutic massage, craniosacral therapy, Feldenkrais, which I don't even know what that is, so I'm going to have to look that up. But I know for me, I didn't go to a chiropractor or a massage therapist until 2000. 18. Molly died in 2016. I was always a regular chiropractic patient and got massages. The thought of having somebody give me a chiropractic adjustment or touch me to massage me was impossible. 
nope, didn't even cross my mind. I didn't miss it. I didn't think about it. And the only person I've gone to now, I've gone back to Bonnie. She's my chiropractor I've had forever. And Lisa Peters, a good friend of mine, is my massage therapist now. She's been a wonderful transition for me because Vonnie knew me before, but I grew up with Vonnie. She's known me since seventh grade math. There was a safety net in Vonnie where, you know, she knows how to keep her distance and she knows how to step in. And then Lisa didn't know me before Molly died. So there's a safety in that. She only knows this barb. I have another massage therapist that I said to my mother the other day, I really do need to make, a, make an appointment. Her name is Sue Smith. I need the Sue Smith experience. I think maybe I'm ready to have that. I don't know yet. We'll see. And craniosacral, that's working with the head and the neck. And I totally could benefit from that. Right after I had my brain surgery, my friend Lisa, Lisa Brady, she came to visit and I was on, the, on a mattress on the floor right where I'm sleeping now. And she crawled right in the bed with me and rubbed my back. And she was so kind. Oh my God. This is when I get teary-eyed. But she did some craniosacral things. She's not a craniosacral therapist, but she's, she understands it as a special educator. You know, she didn't manipulate my head, but, you know, she just did energy and, oh my gosh, it was so helpful. She was just so profoundly helpful for me. And so I would agree that these are things that, that I should, as Jack's mother, I really need to make a regular part of my life. What does body work do for people? Just like you can thirst for water, you can thirst for touch. So this is true for me. And some of it's too personal to say in a podcast. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll blog about it. Yeah, I can't, I can't even put it to words in a podcast. That's, that's how tender it is for me. But being touched. For the most part, like sometimes when my mom reaches out and touches me or Kenny reaches out and touches me, I just flinch. Like, don't touch me. It's not that I don't love these people. It's just difficult for me to be touched. Gracie's spontaneous touches are fine, but Gracie also, maybe it's her age. She takes better care at moderating it, I think. I don't know. I mean, I think sometimes Kenny and my mother need, need to touch me as much as they need to be touched. And it's too much for me right now. So my need to be touched is largely un fulfilled because I can't find a way where it's comfortable. That'll be a process for me. Jack has been really the first step. Gracie was probably the first step because I've never not been able to touch her. If I had to look at the process of me getting back to being touched and being able to touch somebody, that's a pretty intensely personal. Part of it's incredibly personal. And I get so sad. In my process as Jack's mother, I need to get into massage. I really need to take a yoga class. And I think, I think I'm ready. Susie, my friend Susie from the Spiritual Mentor Group, I think you're the person that can help me get back into this. I need some one-on-one. I don't think I could sit in a group of women and do yoga, but I could do one-on-one. Susie Normanda, she's a phenomenal human being that I know through my spiritual mentoring work with Karen Kenny. And actually at one of the retreats, I actually let her do some massage and some, you know, mobility stuff around me, you know? So she's someone else that has hands-on treated me that also is involved in yoga. So I might be ready for that, but these are things I know I need to just put aside my reluctance and do in my process of healing and really being able to be a good mother to Jack. And finally, taking action. So that's the last one. Let me be clear. I have no trouble taking action. But, and what I wrote here was Polly, my friend Polly. So Polly and I are really similar in one one certain way. And that is when somebody's struggling, we jump in right away to help. Sometimes to an extreme. And then now suddenly their problem has been our problem. And we become completely focused on it. We have a spiritual group called Colleen's Girls. And the reason we call ourselves Colleen's Girls is because Colleen is a woman that passed away. And when she was dying, when she was in hospice, her family was away. And so for like the, the 10 days or so that she was alone, we took turns and she was never alone. The group of us became very, very close. We often get together. And a, and a good friend of ours, a member of this group of women, has just lost her mother. And so, of course, right away, Colleen's girls, we have a text thread. We get together and we talk. And Polly has been a major facilitator of this group, jumping right in and helping people. Sometimes I believe to her detriment, and this is me as well. Jumping in to help, diving in, just diving into something. I think of 
diving in and helping Roy. I think of diving in and helping Steph with the charter school. You know, suddenly all the goals I set were invisible. And my new thing was 60 hours a week in a charter school. Just my willingness to, as I've said a thousand times, jump in to save a drowning person when I don't have a life jacket for myself. You know, that kind of thing. So taking action is oftentimes a projection activity for us. I don't take action on myself. I jump in and help someone else. I do for someone else what I should be doing for myself. The body responds to extreme experiences by secreting stress hormones. Yes. These are often blamed for subsequent, subsequent illness and disease. Okay. However, stress hormones are meant to give us strength and endurance to respond to extraordinary conditions. They're supposed to be positive. Outrun the bear, lift the truck off your child, you know, get out of the burning building. Like they help us do things. People who actively do something deal with a disaster. Let me repeat that. People who actively do something to deal with a disaster, rescuing loved ones or strangers, transporting people to a hospital, being part of a medical team, pitching tents or cooking meals, utilize their stress hormones for the proper purpose and therefore are at a much lower risk of becoming traumatized. So I'm going to use an AA example here. In AA, we're encouraged to volunteer, to live a life of gratitude, help people in need. This is a very, very big piece of, of sobriety. It's not just about not drinking. Now turn around and serve your fellow alcoholic. A lot of people, they go, the only reason AA works is you have to go the rest of your life. The only reason you go the rest of your life is every day there's a new drunk showing up that needs what you have to offer them. It is the most intense service organization there is. And some of the people that have years and years of sobriety and have spent countless hours helping others come from some of the deepest, darkest pieces and parts of society. So this is where gratitude comes in. So my religion, I've said before, the Baha'i faith, science and religion have to agree. There is nothing really religious in this book. It is so much scientific method in looking and researching and asking and studying and everything else. And here they are saying that people that do something with their trauma to help others and to make it better for someone else end up doing it better themselves. <laughs> Live a life of service. Science and religion must agree. So here we are being told that service, kindness, living a life of gratitude, all spiritual teachings tell us to find a place of gratitude that to be well inside, we have to be grateful and have gratitude and share that. So here's a scientific guy saying, look, you want to heal your trauma? Go help someone else. Develop a feeling of gratitude. Nonetheless, everyone has his or her breaking point. And even the best prepared person will become overwhelmed by the magnitude of the challenge. So, you know, it doesn't mean you go serve soup at the soup kitchen and you're better, but it does mean that in general, you do better off. And then I wrote here in podcast, so I'm going to read this paragraph to see what I meant by that. Helplessness and immobilization keep people from utilizing their stress hormones to defend themselves. So yeah, immobilization, those two years that I sat and couldn't do anything, the only reason I could survive was I was taking massive amounts of drugs. Okay, I wasn't helping myself at all. I was not in a place of gratitude. I was devastated and doing everything I could to feel nothing. When that happens, their hormones are still being pumped out, but the actions they're supposed to fuel are thwarted. Yes, I put it all in a box and sat on it. Eventually, the activation patterns that were meant to promote coping are turned back against the organism and now keep fueling inappropriate fight, flight, and freeze responses. For me, it was freeze and fright. In order to return to proper functioning, this persistent emergency response must come to an end. The body needs to be restored to a baseline state of safety and relaxation for which it can mobilize to take action in response to real danger. This podcast is probably the first thing I've ever done that I'm actively doing to help others and therefore helping myself, and it has. That's what I think I wrote in podcast because my reaction is to freeze. When I was being abused, I froze. 
in the job loss situation, instead of fighting back, I just let them walk all over me. And then I stayed in bed for months. I froze. It's really what I do. And Molly's death and the subsequent loss of Roy, coping with it was impossible. I needed so much support that just wasn't able to be given by anybody. What did I do? I froze. I just needed to sit still. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. It was horrifying. So this podcast and being able to put to words almost all of what I'm feeling is profoundly helpful. And do I feel grateful? I do. There are times I feel incredibly grateful. So taking action. Sometimes we feel really good. Other times we feel really bad. And we go back and forth between the two of those things. There's a name for this. It's called pendulation. Think of a pendulum that swings back and forth, gently moving in and out of accessing internal sensations of traumatic memories. We have to be allowed to go back. A very constant thing in, in any argument I had with Roy was, oh, here we go again. Well, yes, here we go again. Oftentimes life is a circle. Things come back. The emotions repeat themselves. Yes, here we go again. Maybe this time it will be better. Maybe this time I can approach it more deeply. I don't get that so much from Kenny at all because I think Kenny is just, he's not that kind of fighter. He's not an aggressive fighter. And so I don't get that from Kenny, but I do, we both have our pendulations. He'll get really angry at me for things that I thought he had resolved. That might be a time that I could say, there we go again, but life is a circle. Things come around and around. It's actually one of the most productive ways to teach children. You reteach and then reteach and then reteach all of these different angles and levels. When patients can physically experience what it would have felt like to fight back or run away, they relax, smile, and express a sense of completion. This is something that is very helpful for people that have been attacked and physically beaten or tortured or, or assaulted or mugged. And they take, they take classes where they can beat, beat the crap out of somebody. They take like a self-defense class. I've never had the desire to beat anybody up. I've had the desire to you know, break things. There's a place you can go and smash things. <laughs> I need to go to that place. I don't ever want to hurt the people. It's not about the people. I've never wanted to hit or hurt anybody. But I've been angry and rageful enough that I've wanted to hurt things, to break things, throw things, that sort of thing. Same kind of thing. Giving back some sense of power, taking action. I wish I could go back and say no the first time I was abused because maybe that's all it would have taken for it not to happen than the times it happened after that. Makes me feel like I was part of it, that I made it happen, that I allowed it to happen. That's very hard to focus. I don't know how I could reconcile that in any sort of physical way, but even verbalizing it and saying it out loud is incredibly helpful. That would be that part. So what I want to do in terms of this part, taking action, doing that podcast, at the risk of sounding like I'm full of myself, because that's not why I'm sharing this at all, I have an aunt, Sheila. So she was married to Walty, my uncle Walty. I met her when I was, you know, in college. We're, we're just a few years apart. She's a few years younger than I am. And she listens to the podcast. And she and I have become closer since Molly's death and since Jack's birth because I spend a lot of time at CrossFit Amesbury and she lives nearby. So she oftentimes, we can get together because Amesbury is close to where she lives. And so we have started hanging out together. Not a lot. I mean, actually we haven't hung out together in months and months, but we get together a few times in summer. And once the weather's good and summer comes and she's not working so much, I hope that we can get together more. So what she did was she started listening to the podcast as a way to help. She's doing something to help me that ultimately ends up helping her. And the reason I, I'm going to read this is because if anyone says, why do you do this? I have a couple of friends that think it's stupid that I'm doing this. You're just dumping your dirty laundry. Well, okay, but my dirty laundry is traumatic and important to me. It's my dirty laundry and it's my treasure and it's mine to share. And what I find is by giving, by giving permission to speak of these things, by sharing it in a very public forum, other people can now relate or feel validated in all this. So she writes, 
When Barb started her podcast, I started listening with the intent of getting to know her better and to somehow help her. I don't know the depths of pain Barb or any mother who has lost a child feels. And selfishly, I hope I never do. It's not selfish. But I thought even if I could just be a listening ear, it may help her in some small way. Little did I know I'd be looking forward to a new podcast each week. Much to my surprise, I have found myself listening, laughing, crying, irritated, and happy. I had no idea Barb's experiences would cause so many emotions, both good and not so good in me. I love that Barb is real. She doesn't speak from a script. She just talks as if we are having coffee across the table from each other. I can relate to some of her experiences. I can only imagine others. We have some things in common and we are also very different. However, I enjoy this very personal, open, truthful, comfortable, and uncomfortable podcast. And I think you will too. She is up now on episode 29. That's what this one was. But start at one. Really think you'll like it. Thanks, Barb, for sharing so much of yourself. You inspire me. I love you. So I read these and I'm, of course, my ego is stoked because I, this is an incredible, heartfelt compliment from someone I love immeasurably. She's just somebody from the very beginning. So that meant a lot to me. It really meant a lot to me that she wrote this. It also means a lot to me that she's benefiting from, from it because now everything I've gone through wasn't just all for naught. So thank you, Sheila. I love you. I've had other responses like that, both from people I know and people that I don't know. All right, so number six, it talks about integrating traumatic memories into your life. And so this is probably where, where I'll stop a little bit because now it gets into all the different ways that we can recover. So I'm not going to stop, but it gets into like integrating traumatic memories. So you, you can't just put them in a box and forget about them. You have, to, you have to integrate them and learn how to create room for them because they're never going to disappear. They won't go away and they shouldn't go away. They happen to you. So you have to sort of, the challenge on us trauma victims and, and grief strugglers is to manage, figure out how to carry them. And I always use that blanket analogy. I just used it on a Facebook page. For me, it's a blue sleeping bag, plaid on the inside, blue on the outside. That's the sleeping bag that Molly, we found it in the attic recently, that Molly got sick on all night long, the last night of her life. So anyway, that's for me. So on my bad days, it's wet and heavy. It's, it won't fold up. I have to carry it in front of me. It smells, you know, I trip on it. And on good days, it smells clean, it rolls up, the zipper works, the clasps work, the handles are fine, and I can carry it in my hand. Really good days, it's a backpack and my hands are free, but I'm never, I'm never without it. And that's the integration of traumatic memories. Desensitization. So here's where medications can be negative. You take a medicine and you stop feeling. Like I remember I was on Paxil once, I hated it. I went right off it. But some people do that because their behaviors around feeling are self-harming. Maybe they're cutting themselves or burning themselves, all those self-harm behaviors, suicide attempts. So medications at that time are helpful because they stop, they lower the, the feeling enough that you're not going to kill yourself. Having said that, you can't just, you can't just live a life walking around with a drool rag stumbling, you know, the Thorazine shuffle. No, 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 that's not helpful. That just keeps you manageable and that doesn't help. Drugs to safely access trauma. This goes to all the different drugs that have been used and, and, and different experiments with other types of drugs. I don't find any drug helps with the reality of Molly's death. I know that I couldn't sleep. I don't take anything for sleep now. And, and I can fall asleep, with or without alcohol, I can fall asleep now, much more easily than I could years ago. I still watch TV to fall asleep, which maybe isn't healthy, but right now that's the distraction that helps me. And I couldn't take drugs now anyway, because I'm a nursing mother. So there was a time, however, when I began this process that I couldn't imagine not taking all the 9,000 pills I was taking. So what about medication? So it continues along. And I wrote in here, me, just because I've been, you know, it talks about drugs, gin, vodka, beer, whiskey, <laughs> hash, cannabis, ganja, cocaine, opioids, oxycontin, tranquilizers, Valium, Xanax, clonopin. So I've taken some of these. I've taken a lot of these medicines prescribed to me 
in different aspects of grief around Molly. I took a ton of them when I lost my job because my whole life blew up in front of me and, and I had these little girls that had a good life and I didn't want to ruin it for them by uprooting them and all that. It talks about medication is specific to trauma and grief. It's necessary. I believe that it plays a healthy role in people getting better and getting well. I don't know that any of us should need to be on it forever, but if you have a chemical imbalance or something in your body doesn't work right, you know, no diabetic in the world can stop insulin because their body doesn't produce it, so they need it. And I think that there are certain aspects of mental illness and issues around the brain that require medical intervention. I don't always feel that emotional and like situational things require it long-term. I have a wonderful psychiatric nurse practitioner at Larvin. He's a phenomenal man. Love, love, love him. And he always diagnosed me with situational depression and anxiety that when I went through a stressful time, I reacted in a way that validated medication. And I took medication for a long time. I haven't taken any now since, you know, it's, I'm in year three now of not taking any medication. I didn't think that would ever happen. The road to recovery is the road of life. So if this were to be the, the title for season four, I think it might be this. The road of recovery is the road of life. He talks here, the author talks here about a Vietnam vet and how early in his life, when he got married, his crying baby triggered these horrible memories of crying babies in Vietnam. And he had some, some successful therapy around dealing with that trauma. And then as he got older, something else, he had a reintroduction of trauma. 18 years later, he was feeling all these same things, having flashbacks again. Well, his son had just registered for the draft. So now here's his son going off at the age he was to do what he did. Not Vietnam, but you know, the army. The road to recovery is the road of life. You live life. And so I know that in my life, I will have continuing times that will bring me right back to where I am. And I have Jack in this now. I'm going to end here. I know this was perhaps a bit of an all over the place podcast. A lot of mine feel that way to me. But it's been wonderful. And I'm going to continue reading this book. And so the healing aspects and the remainder of this book will play a big role in talking about being a mother to Jack. I'm going to read some other books too around parenting. I don't want to be so narrow as a mother that those of you that don't have children can't relate and resonate. But I will say this. I am a mother to many, many children that, that I did not grow. When I look back on all the young girls and who are now women and mothers themselves that I coached over the years and taught over the years, I had some pretty intense roles with them, you know, mentoring, mothering, that sort of thing. And so when I think about mothering, I think about mothering Jack, I have hundreds of young ladies that I think of with warmth in my heart around being a mother. And mothering and nurturing an intrinsic role that isn't natural to everybody. It doesn't need to be. I always wanted Gracie and Molly to have lots of mothers. And I feel that way about Jack, Rachel's mother, Jen. When I handed him off today, he went into her arms and she gets to be another mother for him. I want him to have a lot of mothers. You know, Gracie has these wonderful friends from her early childhood program and teacher prep. And they love Jack, all these little aunties that he has. And that's important for him. I can't be his only mother figure. I was that way with Gracie and Molly, constantly encouraging them to connect with and love other adult women that could be mother figures for them and play mother roles. As always, I want to thank you. Thank you for taking part and being a part of this. So coming up as well, I'm going to start a newsletter. I'm a bit overwhelmed by it at the time, but honestly, but by the time this episode should air, so this episode will air April 5th. So this is Molly's birthday this Friday. Yeah, I don't even want to think about it. See, <laughs> keep that at bay. I will think about it. She would be turning 19. So that's you know, a pretty intense thing. So in the month of April, my goal is to start, have an email list and start doing a newsletter. In the newsletter, we'll introduce the podcast, but I also love to write and I'm just getting to the point where I can write again. So my goal now is to not only have a weekly podcast, but have a weekly blog. And my blog can be a bit more real time. Writing a podcast is an hour of talking. 
And oftentimes I record them ahead of time because I need an empty house. I can type a blog in the middle of the night, wake up and not be able to sleep. I can write a blog. It's a bit different. So I'll talk about a lot of the same things, but it will be much more real time. And I'll blog a lot about topics. And that's a place too, I can talk a bit more about my relationship issues and job loss and those kinds of things. Those will come in the podcast, but I think later on down the road. I also want to talk a lot about my addiction issues. You know, we look at addicts. You know, you say drug addicts and you think of somebody under a bridge with a lot of tattoos, real skinny, with track marks on their arms, you know. Yeah, a lot of people are like that who are addicts. But in my process of utilizing drugs to find relief after Molly died, I met some pretty upper echelon people that rely heavily on substances to perform their professional activities. And I would never, ever be an out of those people. But it was an eye-opening experience for me to see how pervasive drug use is in our society and our culture. And, you know, again, I have people in my life that say I talk too much and I'm too open. Mrs. Ludi would be all over me to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> she didn't understand why I talked. Why do you share that stuff? I also know that there are a lot of other women like me that suffer in silence and think that they're the only one. You know, in my mind, the more I can share, the better off. And I have a friend who also said, well, you don't, do you want Jack to know all those things about you? Well, Jack is going to find out everything about me, regardless of whether it's me saying them or not. We live in an online society now. As soon as he's old enough, 20 years down the road to Google my name, he'll know everything. And so I'd rather that he has an opportunity to hear it from my mouth or read it from my pen or my keyboard because it's my words and my truth and the truth and not someone else's decision or of what my reality is. You know, there are people that like to say things about me that aren't true at all. Anyway, so those things will be coming, but a newsletter, if you need a lot of information, I have a website, www.1000tinysteps.com. And that's where both the podcast is and the blog site. And that's where the email list will be generated from. Coming up will be the process of signing up and getting your email in there. I'm not, gonna, I'm not selling anything. So never will this turn into having to buy anything. That's not where I'm at right now at all. I want this aspect of what I provide to always just be available for anyone who wants it. I don't ever want there to be a money component to grief and trauma and therapy and those kinds of things. My story is free. <laughs> I also head back to Utah next week. We have to have another photo sesh, which is exciting to me. I'm very excited about that. I'm not so excited about flying across the country with a baby, but I will say being given permission to just feel and share and talk without judgment is profoundly helpful. Again, it's why I like this venue, this podcast, because people can write back to me and be honest and share their, their realities and their truth. So that's coming up as well. And then I'm finalizing the Molly B Foundation website, and that will be done and up and running by the end of this week as well. And then putting together, really putting together an online presence that is much more consistently shared and available and accessible and a bit more professional. I'm getting there. It's taking a long time. So I'm excited about this. April is coming up. April and May are big Molly months. We've decided as a foundation that April and May will always be major fundraising months for the Molly B Foundation. And it makes sense. We start with the beginning of spring and Jack's birth. And then we have April, which is Molly's birthday and Gracie's birthday, just the longer days and the warmer weather. And then comes May, which should be like, used to be my favorite month of the year, May and June. And now May is just a month, month to survive. But let's make it positive. Let's, let's commemorate Molly in a positive way. So we'll have a clothing drive then. We'll have the Molly B workout at my CrossFit gym, the clothing drive, Molly B Monday. All of these things will be happening in May. That will also be accessible on the Molly B website. And there'll be a link. I'll put a link on the the website as well. And actually, I need to get the Facebook page organized. These are all things that are coming up for me. So I appreciate your support and your patience. A shout out to Marshall, who's helped me with getting these websites up and running, and to Jace, my podcast editor, who continually encourages me to take the next step and has really, really facilitated and put together an amazing next few months for me. And I'm just, I'm just grateful for all of that. 
for all of you, for all the behind the scenes people in my life. So I'm getting rambly here. So as usual, <laughs> be nice to yourself, be nice to someone else. And as always, have a great day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.